Morning. Right. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I missed my chance to escape. Um, remembering that our entire series is called Prevention's Better Than a Cure. Okay? Just remember that. I'm off. <laughs> no. Miranda. Has anyone seen the TV series Miranda? Yeah? Now, if you haven't, this is, this is a cracking comedy series based on about a woman who, she just, wants, she just wants to find love, but she's a little bit, I don't want to say repressed, but she can't say the word, eh. okay? <laughs> so she's just like talking about things that are, eh, you will, okay? Because it's a bit rude. You, you don't say that kind of thing, do you? You especially don't say it in church. You don't say the word, eh, in church. I feel a little bit like, do you know those post-watershed TV programs that no one ever watches but always says that they don't watch it, but they actually do? Um, <laughs> where they say, this program contains adult themes or may contain sexual references. That's what I feel we need to say for the next couple of sermons. May contain this word, sex. Church has not been great with this whole terminology of sex, have we? It's kind of been like the thing you don't talk about. And uh, we've, got a, we've got some early church fathers who are kind of to blame for this. There was Augustine, who, to be honest, put it about a bit before he became a Christian. And uh, then he became a Christian, thought it's really bad to have sex, so Christians shouldn't do that. And that influenced the church's teaching. A guy called Origen, who um, believed that sex only happened after the fall of Adam and Eve. That's the time it came, because it couldn't have happened before that. And a guy called Eve of, of Chartres, who uh, decided that um, Christians shouldn't have sex on a Thursday night, because of um, the Last Supper, on a Friday, because of the Passion of Jesus, for Saturday, because he was in the tomb, for Sunday, because um, it was the day of the resurrection, for Monday, out of honor of the, of the Virgin Mary. So came the phrase, thank God, it's Tuesday. <laughs> We've not been great at And then we have the Victorian attitudes of, you know, even a piano's legs need to be covered, because really, it's too much for me. We've not been great at this um, until relatively recently when um, a guy who maybe you know, a guy called Steve Chalk, maybe you've heard of him, um, he was a big, uh, we had a big kind of Steve Chalk fan club in Northern Ireland, okay? We didn't get out much. And uh, in the Christian subculture, we really kind of idolized him. We used to do impressions of him. I'm telling you, the nights flew in, okay? <clears throat> and he, the standard, imagine I've got floppy hair, because he did in the 90s, and he went, and God created sex. And he opened up the conversation in churches, and it wasn't spoken about before. But moving on, I want to ask you a, a general knowledge question. Is that okay? Right. <laughs> Depends what it is. <laughs> Thank you, my co-minister. Um, question. What was the first commandment? <laughs> Those are those who close all your hearts. Yeah, no. This is the first commandment. Be fruitful and multiply. The first commandment in the Bible is go and have sex. Don't believe me, go and look at it. Genesis chapter 1. The first commandment God gives to, to humanity is not love the Lord God with all your heart. So the first one recorded in Scripture is go forth and multiply. Who says sex is a dirty word? It is not. It is a God-given good gift, but it has been distorted and warped. 
It's been damaged and perverted. But this is a God-given, God-created thing. Genesis chapter 1 says that it's the first thing that God commands. In Genesis chapter 2, it says that Adam and Eve were together, they were naked, and there was no shame. How many of us, I will put my hand up as well, because I know other people have as well, have got shame in their background over things in this area, in some way, shape, or form. I'm sure many of us do. They were naked and knew no shame. And then I had a beautiful moment at the 9.15. I got Chris and Joe Murray to read Song of Songs. You know Song of Songs, the bit where you used to read as a teenager and giggle? Let's admit, not just as teenagers, okay? There's lots of... In the center of our holy scriptures is an erotic love poem. It's not primarily about Jesus and the church. It's about love between a man and a woman. Because this is a God-given, pure, holy thing. In fact, the Bible, God, Jesus, and yes, even Paul, have an incredibly high view of sex and sexuality. The church is often damned for having such a low esteem for sex. But actually, it's incredibly high. In fact, some of the things that we associate with sexiness is actually really narrow and just to do with a kind of narrow physical pleasure. God has created something so magnificently beautiful and intimate and it's been damaged. But he's put it within a walled garden. Some of you recognize this is up at Scargill, a walled garden. And he says, within this walled garden, things are safe. Outside of it, it's not. That doesn't mean go up to Scargill House. Okay. <laughs> Stop heckling, Reverend Holmes! Is that your caravan? That's their caravan. <laughs> this is being recorded. Mike and Lisa's caravan is outside the walled garden. I really feel just like walking home now, okay? Anyway, it was just a picture. God has created barriers and boundaries not to restrict, but to be safe to protect something which is valuable. We call that marriage. And it is a God-given ordinance. It's not restrictive, it's freedom-giving. Okay? Very, very high view of sex. We're going to be thinking about um, things to do with sex and sexuality over the next couple of weeks, and the first thing we need to burst the bubble about is that God has not got a diner on sex. It is a good thing. In fact, Christians, if anybody, should be the ones who are talking about it most, celebrating it and saying, this is fantastic. I had a young person once um, who wrote on their kind of social media, something which is quite worrying. They wrote on it, I want to have wild, passionate sex, dot, 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 when I'm married. I was a little bit worried when I read the first part (laughs) because actually this is a God-given thing in a protected place. Otherwise, there is damage it's distorted, and this is where we get the word immorality from. This uh, website is called um, Ashley Madison. I don't know if you've heard it. It was on the news relatively recently. This is a website that was set up for people who were in marriages to find someone to have an affair with. It was like a dating scene for someone to have an affair. The tagline is this, life is short, have an affair. This is online. Let me tell you about pornography. Um, it's... it's uh, a scourge on the church, on our society at the moment. I've worked with a number of guys. I've, you know, I've been through this as I was a teenage lad. It was something I had to go through as well. 
And I own that because actually there's a lot of guys who can't, don't feel free to own that. And actually it's a scourge of the church. I'll tell you this, in 2007, there was a survey in the US that said 50% of Christian men have admitted to being addicted to online pornography. 20% of women in the US, Christian women, have said that they are addicted to online pornography. In 1998, there were 28,000 websites with some kind of sexual explicit material. Recently, it's been counted around 4.2 million websites that are to do with some kind of sexual exclusive activity. Microsoft suggests that about 60% of the internet is porn or porn-related. If you don't think this affects our church, I'm going to tell you something really from my heart. Wake up, because it really does. Someone said this is the biggest problem that's going to face our next generation, particularly of men, but not exclusively, in the church and beyond. Let's wake up to it, please. Over a half of men and a fifth of Christian women have a problem in this area. And this is just one aspect of sexual immorality. Pre-extra and unnatural sex, affairs, porn, promiscuity. It dehumanizes people. We just heard the brilliant grant that's gone to Snowdrop Project. What are they dealing with? They're dealing with the knock-on effects of this thing called immorality. Just read the statement by Dr. Trevor Stammers. One of the most popular false gods today is the worship of sex. Would you agree with that? You need to watch TV to see it. Everyone uniformly living in Western society faces exactly the same temptation to engage in sexual activity whenever and however they want to at any particular time. And Snowdrop Project and others are picking up the pieces of it at an extreme level. People who are trafficked in slavery to satisfy immorality. The damages of lust, it deceives. See, the thing is, immorality, whatever way, whether it's an affair, pornography, whether it's promiscuity, pre, post, um, or extramarital sexual affairs, they all deceive. They're all built on a lie. The lie that promises what it can't deliver. Because what will deliver is what God says, this exists within these parameters, and it's safe. I'm not just talking about in the bedroom. I'm talking about the sexuality, relationship between men and women in general. There is a purity which can happen within relationships between men and women, but only if we guard the wall. That's why this is so important that we don't shy away from talking about it at church. As much as we should celebrate the fact that this is God's creation, we should be aware of how much is being warped and distorted by the fall and even by ourselves. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 First rant over. <laughs> if you want to turn to that. We're looking at a particularly nasty um, situation. You can get Paul's feeling of kind of utter shock. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. I don't think Paul was, an, was unreal. I think he probably was aware there would be some kind of sexual temptation that continues post-becoming a Christian. Because all of us know as soon as you become a Christian, you don't feel tempted in any way, do you? Liar. Okay. Paul would know that there's temptations of all kind, sexual immorality included. He will know that people mess up here, there, and everywhere. This is about a choice, a persistent choice to carry on in this sin. And this is a sin where it says that the, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. The fact it says father's wife means he's, he's probably still alive, otherwise it would say widow. So it's probably not his mother, otherwise he would have used that mother terminology. He is sleeping, he's having an affair with his stepmother. 
This is utterly condemned outright in black and white in Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 22, and Deuteronomy 27. It says, do not sleep with your father's wife. Full stop. Not any clearer, really. Can you get that? But this guy's doing that. And it's a sin that even people in Corinth are kind of, would go, that's a bit off. This is Corinth that has 2,000 prostitutes sent down from the temple of Aphrodite to engage in promiscuity for the glory of Aphrodite. And people did that as a sign of kind of reverence and worship. This is a city full of sexual immorality. And even they would say, whoa, that's a bit dodge, that is. But you're engaging in it. What's going on? What's going on? The problem that Paul had wasn't just with that sin. It's almost exemplary because it's so bad. His problem was with the church. It's not that it was just morally relaxed and kind of, hey man, anything goes. It was more than that. They were actually proud of the fact that this was going on. They celebrated the fact that this man was engaged in relations, sexual relations with his stepmother. It was a badge of honor for them. Now there's a couple of reasons why they might have, done, might have thought this. And, and maybe it, it refers to a little bit of us today as well. Maybe they lost the concept of grace and they expanded it beyond its right parameters. Grace is all about love and acceptance, isn't it? Everybody's welcome. It doesn't matter what you're doing, does it? That's not grace. Too much grace. It's all right. You'll be forgiven anyway, so just get on with it. We explore that in other places in Corinthians and other letters as well. The poor application of what grace is about. Or maybe it's because we don't want to be judgmental. That's the big crime, isn't it, of today? You're not allowed to be judgmental. You can't judge anyone. So just accept everyone and everything that they do because it's their right to do it. And so just, let's just celebrate that we are a, a, a culture, a community that welcomes anybody doing whatever they want, and that's okay. That's Corinth. Or actually... Maybe this is another reason. They were arrogant about their spiritual maturity. They were, we know that they were heavily influenced by the sophists, the philosophers of the day, who often one school of philosophy said that kind of the flesh means nothing, so you can just get on with it. As long as you're protecting your spirit, you can do whatever you want. And that had infiltrated the church. Do whatever you want this life because it's all to do with the next, so it's absolutely fine. And they become arrogant. Those petty rules that other people need to follow, we don't need to follow because we have grace, we have love, we have acceptance. And this is what Paul's problem is about. It's possible there were a number of different factions within this church. Maybe some people who thought that we should indulge and other people thought that we should avoid but the problem is not that the church was happy that they had sinners in it because I'm really happy that this church is full of sinners because otherwise I'd be a bit lonely. Okay? All we are sinners saved by grace. That's fine. We are all sinners saved by grace. But the problem was they were proud and satisfied of the fact the sins were continuing. And so we get this really horrid word. Discipline. It's got that kind of connection of telling off, of, of punishment, doesn't it? Of being scolded by someone in an orange cardigan. It's about punishment and being told off. And so what's the punishment that Paul suggests here? It's fairly extreme. It's what we would call excommunication. 
Okay? It's the kind of thing you read about in medieval history. The, the Pope sitting on his throne doesn't like the smell of that person, so excommunicates him. What does that mean? Well, in the medieval ages, it meant that you were damned to hell. It was the ultimate sanction that popes had over kings and queens. Don't attack us because we'll damn your eternal soul. Bit of a trump card, wouldn't you say? But excommunication here is you are out of the communion of the saints. You will not have the table fellowship around the Lord's table with us. You will be put out of the fellowship. Now, this is really uncomfortable, isn't it? We don't like church discipline. It sounds just a bit harsh, doesn't it? We don't like upsetting people. Let's have a look at it. This seems harsh. We're not too keen. This is, a, this is an exemplary case of sexual immorality and the church accepting it. But sometimes big problems need big and drastic solutions, don't they? I remember going into um, a new class in a new school with a new teacher, and they just seemed like a dragon in the first few lessons. One I remember, Mr. Dalzell, was really terrifying. Everybody, you know, you breathed the wrong way and you were in detention. Everyone was terrified. I'm sure you had that experience of, hopefully. Um, And then after a few weeks, maybe a few months, you realize, actually, this teacher's really cool. And we're allowed to have a little joke and they say something funny. And actually, do you know what? I learned something and the banter's there. And within a year, you go, do you know what? That was my favorite teacher. They start off really strict and say, these are the parameters. And then once you've realized that, then we can relax a little bit. Sometimes we need very strict guidelines. And this is what Paul is saying. Something serious needs a serious solution. So why discipline? This, Paul's saying don't do it. sexual immorality. It's not new news to them. He spent 18 months with this church. I've got a feeling that during that 18 months, the topic of sexual immorality in Corinth probably came up in conversation. And he probably told them what was right and what was wrong. But they chosen to ignore this. They were moving on in their own sense of what was right and what was wrong. We often think discipline is about punishment, but I wonder whether discipline, let's just have a little play with the word a little bit, whether discipline is actually more about becoming a disciple rather than being punished. Becoming one of Jesus' followers more and more. And I think there's three reasons why Paul has been so clear about what needs to be done with this guy. The first one is for the benefit of the individual himself. And this is a long-term benefit because this guy needs to realize the, uh, the offense that he's engaged in. He needs to have an opportunity to repent and redress what he's up to. Because otherwise, it, it's like an endorsement of what he's doing. He's going to end up further and further away from God. There's a great verse in in verse 4. It says, hand him over to Satan. That sounds a wee bit scary, doesn't it? It sounds like he's going to be sacrificed in a big burning pyre, doesn't it? But actually, it sounds a little bit like Romans chapter 1, where Paul writes that God handed sinful people who chose that way over to their sinfulness. And what I think this means is that God says, or Paul says to the church, let him face the consequences of his actions. Because remember, Corinth weren't too hot. The pagans in Corinth weren't too hot on this guy's actions either. So put him out of the church and see if he can get a grip of just how serious this sin is. Because accepting him and his behavior is essentially an endorsement of what he's doing. It's not helping. It reinforces the action and the behavior. And it's not as loving as it first seems. 
Because the church's responsibility to each other is to discipline one another. In the words, in the sense of becoming a disciple more and more of Jesus. And if we don't do that, if the Corinthian church didn't do that, they were letting this guy down. Now, of course, we don't want to be judgmental, do we? Um, Jesus was all loving and huggy and soft, wasn't he? Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, guide it out and throw it away. He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off and throw it away. That doesn't sound like cuddly, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, have a lollipop, does it? Because he took sin seriously. And the church needs to take sin seriously as well. And I, I love that um, joke that Jesus cracks, and we don't get it, but I'll talk about it again, where he says, you know, don't tell someone they've got a speck of dust in their eye when you've got a plank of wood in yours. And we go, well, yes, very serious. He's painting a picture of a guy with a big bit of wood sticking out of his eye going, oi, you've got a speck of dust in your eye. It's ridiculous. What does Jesus say after that? First of all, take the plank out of yours. Then tell your brother, you've got a speck of dust in your eye. It's not don't judge. It said make sure that you are right first. Make sure you've addressed it. So a person has a particular sin issue. It's not your position to go up and say, oi, filthy sinner. It's your responsibility to go, where is there sin in my life? Where can I get alongside my brother or my sister to say, I don't think this is good for you or good for the church. I don't think it's good for your family. Can I get alongside you? Will you check that I've not got a plank in my eye before I help you with yours? Is that discipline? I think it is. Is that discipleship? I think it is. Is it tough? Yes. Is it needed? Absolutely. So the benefit of the individual, let's not bury sin. It's also beneficial to the church. The church in Corinth is still really young at the time, really young, and they're still making loads of mistakes. They're having heavy influence from the culture around them and the background of their believers that are there, major divisions within the church. And Paul's aware of the cancerous effect that unaddressed sin can have throughout an entire congregation. This is maybe quite a small church. One person involved in this will have serious consequences because sin unaddressed, persistent, chosen sin damages not just the individual but those around. And he uses the image of yeast. Now, um, yeast at the Passover. At the Passover festival, Jews are incredibly thorough in getting rid of yeast. Now, it's not the same as just grabbing your tin of Allinson's and chucking it in the bin. Okay? They would have kept this live yeast in order to make leavened bread. They would have kept it and cared for it. Maybe you've done, there was something that passed around a couple of years ago. What was it? A jar of, was it called George or something? Someone gave it a name. Herman? Yeah, of course, Herman the yeast. Okay? And it was used and then kept a little bit in order to be used again. And it was used again. Is that right? Herm Sourdough. Okay, technical. Um, it was keeping yeast. But a Passover, and still do today, Jewish people get rid of every element of yeast to remind us of getting rid of sin. Throughout scripture, yeast and the influence of yeast is often used as a picture of sin because yeast gets everywhere. It spreads, it puffs up, it influences the whole lot. But yet it seems pretty insignificant. And Paul says, get rid. Be ruthless about this. 
in strict Orthodox Judaism, they clean and clean and clean their kitchen to make sure there's not even a microbe of yeast left. That's how thorough they want to be a holy people. It says, get rid of what seems pretty insignificant. But it sounds unloving, doesn't it, to kick this guy out of the church for the sake of the church. But actually, he says, become what you are. Get rid of the old lease so you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. He's telling them, okay, this is Passover time. The sacrifice of the lamb has happened. Get rid of all that's evil and live in the light of the Passover lamb. Maybe that's slightly different for us. We're told instead to live in the light of the cross. So if the reason Jesus came to die on the cross is because of our sin, because of our sexual immorality, our greed, our our unfaithfulness, our idolatry, our slander, if that's why Jesus has come and died on the cross for us to give us freedom from that, a new life from that, then why on earth would you go back to doing it again? We need to live in the light of the sacrifice of the cross. So Paul says, don't live with malice and wickedness but live with sincerity and truth. He's not expecting us or the church to be 100% ethically pure all the time. I think he's more of a realist than that. But the pursuit of it, he expects. Live in sincerity and truth. Be honest and open. The thing that stops us being able to be helpful in disciplining one another is that we're not open with one another enough. Whenever you say to someone, listen, I'm, I'm worried about you and what you do on, on the internet sometimes. You've got no right to talk to me because you are, actually, I struggle with whatever. It's called openness and honesty, sincerity, that all our aim for this church is to be like Jesus. That is all our aims together. Sincerity and truth, because all these sins that Paul writes about, particularly sexual immorality, is based on a lie that it will ultimately satisfy, and it won't. Sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. So it's not just the benefit of the individual and the church, but actually for the benefit of the gospel and of Jesus. You, I'm sure, will be absolutely horrified by the number of stories that seem to come out in the press regarding priests who are involved in sexual abuse of children. It seems one case after another after another. It is... Evil, let's say it what it is. But it's over there, isn't it? Well, actually, no, it's in Keithley. There was a pastor of an evangelical Pentecostal church just has been sent to crown court for 20 years of sexually abusing children. That's getting closer to our denomination, isn't it? And what does it do? Um, I was talking to someone who, about this, and they were saying that they know that when they go to some young people and they say, yeah, I work for the church, their immediate response is, oh, you're a kitty fiddler then, aren't you? The gospel has been tainted by the actions of these people indulging sexual immorality that have not been addressed. Then we also have high-profile Christian leaders who have succumbed to the lure of sex, money, power, and they fall from their position, and every bit of truth they once spoke has been tainted. The history of the church taints the gospel even now. Why, why, one of the reasons it's so difficult to talk about Jesus in the Muslim world is because of the actions of the Crusades. It still haunts. 
These things erode the integrity of the gospel. It mutes the prophetic voice of the church that's needed today and it smears the holy and pure name of Jesus Christ. That's another reason why we need to address continuing persistent sin in our lives and in the lives of those around us. It's discipline and it's discipleship. A whole church exercise and responsibility in love and in openness, sincerity and truth. Non-judgmental and starting with ourselves because we're called to be distinctive. We're called to be distinctive. Verses 9 and 10, I love this, where Paul's written a letter saying, don't engage with those who are sexually immoral. And so I think maybe there's a couple of different factions. There were the indulgers and the avoiders in this church. The indulgers said, anything goes, let's hang out with all the sinners and say, it's okay, anyone's welcome, get on with what you're doing. And the avoiders, who kind of bury themselves away, and they don't watch TV, they don't watch movies, they don't go out to a restaurant, they don't, I don't know, drive cars, and they dress in grey. Because we need to avoid. And I think those are the two extremes, indulge or avoid. And I think they're both being addressed here. Paul says, if you avoid anyone who's sexually immoral or greedy, you're going to be pretty lonely. (laughs) He's talking about the church. We have a responsibility to guard each other in the church. It's clear evidence today in the church of those extremes, those people who are very open, those people who want to hide away. And actually both responses deny Jesus' incarnation, which is the pure, majestic God in the midst of a mucky, filthy world. That's incarnation, isn't it? Jesus coming among us. Born in poo and straw. That's Jesus, God with us. Someone's written, the world needs a church that takes sin seriously, enjoys forgiveness freely, pursues holiness, and combines it with a joyful celebration of God's presence. We need to be thoroughly in the world, in the culture, in the society, but utterly and ruthlessly distinctive within it. Another phrase for godly distinctiveness is this, holiness. A word that makes us think that we need to put on a brown smock, wear sandals, and go off into the desert and grow beards if we can. That's not holiness. Holiness is being godly distinctive in the midst of a mucky world. That's kind of exciting to be godly distinctive in the midst of a mucky world. Holiness feels a bit more accessible now. We need to be presenting an alternative kingdom of God culture. And it's not just about sex. Notice there's no league table of sex with Paul. League table of sins. Sex is one of them. The church has said it's the worst. It's not. It's one of the sins. It's equally up there with dodging your taxes. It's equally up there with having too high a priority on possessions for slandering that person in the church. There is equally as bad on God's side as sexual immorality. And Paul says, sort it out, because this kingdom of God culture, we need to be a people, holy people living in the real world. First Peter writes it like this, amazing words. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Not to go back into the darkness, but to live as people of the light. It's a continuation of the challenge and call of Israel. We are to be people of transformation. Not indulgence, but forgiveness and restoration. 
Some scholars disagree, but some suggest that the guy who was put out of this fellowship for this incestuous relationship is referred to in 2 Corinthians as having been restored and forgiven. I, I like that. This guy has responded to the discipline and is now a closer disciple of Jesus and for the better. We are a place of transformation. I love the fact that, um, Ruth, where are you? That word you shared is incredibly prophetic. Um, I think it sums up what this is about, that God is chasing us for the paperwork that needs sorting without which we can't go further. And some of us have got things in our lives, and we're, I'll name it, some of us will have areas of sexual immorality, even now that are live and hidden. Some of us may have it in the background, and we've never really shaken the guilt of it. Maybe it's not even sexual immorality, although I suspect there's probably a good dose of that because we've not been allowed to talk about it. Actually, we're having a bit of an amnesty over this little while, over these next few weeks. God welcomes you and says, let's get that paperwork sorted. Let's be transformative. I've got this phrase. Um, I've used it many times. I'll continue to use it because I think it sums up something beautiful. Jesus loves us exactly as we are but he loves us too much to leave us that way. One is grace. The other is discipline going forward. Distinctively godly in a mucky world. Holiness. Over these next little while, we're going to be thinking about this more and more. We say our focus is discipleship. Part of that is that godly distinctiveness. Can I invite you guys up? Is that okay? We're going to worship again. And I like this term that was in my my mind during the week about this kind of amnesty. Yeah, just take everything with it. This amnesty from God which says, okay, lay down your weapons, just come to me, okay. Because God knows the stuff that we struggle with. So we're going to worship and some of the words that we're going to sing together will be enough for us to come to God and say, What I'm struggling with now, God, you take. What I have struggled with in the past, will you please take the damage from that? Can I forgive? Can I also be forgiven? Will you restore? Will you transform? Maybe those words will be enough as we sing them. I hope they are. Holy Spirit, please, will you come and do your work? But if you want to, come and speak to, maybe the prayer team will be at the front. Can I say, if you come to the front, it's not an admission that you're, you know, you know what I mean, okay? (laughs) Let's not put things on people. But if people want to come to the front, we're not going to judge you because basically every one of us are filthy sinners saved by grace and made beautiful by Jesus. So let's do the business we need to do. And as we go on from here, if you want to come and speak to myself, to Lisa, tomorrow, over the week, get in touch with us. Don't let the Holy Spirit's prompting of, this is you, don't leave it behind because God wants to sort the paperwork out. Prevention's better than the cure. Let's pray together.